a reading from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the, world, to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today's going to be an exciting day because my dear friend Ryan Reeves is here. And uh, for those who don't know who Ryan is, Ryan has actually preached with us couple times before. Uh, It's actually Dr. Ryan Reeves, but he gets mad at me when I call him doctor. And uh, I just want to say welcome, Dr. Reeves. Um, (laughs) Ryan is a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, He also is an international trainer for Campus Crusade for Christ, and he's a regular contributor to the Gospel Coalition. Um, he's well known, kind of actually across the globe at this point, for taking complex questions around theological issues and making them simple and accessible. He has a whole YouTube, YouTube platform that literally has hundreds of thousands of followers. And so, of course, he would be with us here at the Daniel Island Fellowship. And he's not just here, you know, he's here in flip flops. Why? Because we grew up together. We grew up in Polk County, Florida, where sometimes we didn't even have shoes going to school. And so um, it's really an honor to have him with me and with us to support kind of our preaching load and to help build this community of faith. So if you would, let's give Dr. Ryan Reeves a warm welcome to the DI Fellowship. I've got to preach twice now, so I need a stool the second time. Now, the only person who calls me doctor is my mom. Um, that's because she's proud. Um, but I always point out to people, in any life-threatening scenario, I'm the worst doctor to have. Um, so it's not worth calling me that. Um, uh, these, I had a student who was from California uh, years ago. And uh, to paraphrase him, these verses are like, Whoa, man, like, whoa, you know. The, in the sense that there, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of stuff that can be missed, gotten wrong, kind of overplayed. And uh, what I always usually say is it, it's a result of how the words are understood. So as some of you know, um, there's a soccer tournament. Uh, the NCAA tournament's happening on the, on the island out here. Um, and in the hotel last night, there are all these very tall, athletic uh, female soccer players running around, particularly Duke. Um, uh, no one mistakes me for a high caliber athlete. So um, it was very strange to be there. Uh, so uh, later in the night, I left something in my car, went down to get it. I was wearing a University of Florida t-shirt. Um, and then I, uh, there was something on my phone that my wife had texted me goodnight, and I was writing her back. And I was sort of standing out in front, and it said University of Florida. And someone like swung their car around, drove up, 
stopped, pulled down the uh, window. Now, where I grew up, that, that's not a good sign if someone runs up and pulls down their window. That somebody's mad at you or they're just gonna, something's wrong. But it was uh, an older woman, she just said, I just wanted to say good luck tomorrow. <laughs> and of course, I'm supposed to be here, so I was like, thank you. Um, uh, she said, you're a coach, right? And at that point I realized, oh, okay. Um, it was the shirt. She thought I was from the University of Florida as a coach. <laughs> so by that point, I didn't have the, the um, guts to tell her. So I was like, mm-hmm, yeah. And she said, well, good luck, and she drove off. So apparently I need to wrap this up quick because i got to get over to the stadium. Um, but the, the point is, is she, she, she saw the words on my shirt and she misunderstood them, right? She, she assumed something based off of how uh, the context and everything looked. Uh, and that's really what goes on here. You're used to Protestants and, and Paul, other places of the New Testament saying, look, here's the gospel, you can't earn it. You have to receive it as a gift. Christ has done all the work. And then he says here, um, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now, uh, uh, skipping ahead, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you're going, whoa, that does not sound fun. It does not sound necessarily like the, the, the gospel that he's said other places, or the gospel that a lot of people have described to you. It sounds like works. It sounds like, here's a bar, get over it. Here's, here's, a, here's a standard, live up to it, conform. But like the case of my shirt with this woman, and like the case of uh, several other verses in the New Testament, what you're seeing can be confused only because of the way the jargon is being used, right? So Paul is using words that sounds scary in English, but in, in his world, they were understood a different way. Um, again, if you've ever had to learn a foreign language, you know this experience where someone makes a comment and they, they're joking in on their language and you're like, that makes no sense when I actually translate it in my head into English or something like this. Um, that's a kind of what's going on here. Um, because what he's actually saying is not scary, it's actually very intimate and very loving and very friendly. Um, but he is encouraging something, and he is extending sort of a vision for what they ought to be. But he's not saying it in a way where he's saying, you don't live up to this, you better. Rather, as it says here, you have already been doing this, let me encourage you to keep doing it. And let's take the big picture of Philippians to get down into this. So Philippians is a very important city in the ancient world. It's very wealthy. Uh, it was founded by Alexander the Great's daddy. Um, his name is Philip, Philip of Macedon. And the area of Macedon, if, if you go to modern Greece and go up, it's right there. It's right in the, uh, just north of the Greek, the, what we call the Greek islands. Macedonia is very, very important, and this city is very important, and we know a lot about the founding of the church here from the book of Acts. Um, in fact, Philippi, this city, is, we would say, in terms of the history, it's the first, quote, European city to be founded by a, by a Christian, the church there. All the other churches were in what we would today call the Middle East. This is now pushing up into areas that would be Europe. Um, and it's a very important city. It was a retirement city for Roman soldiers. So it was like a destination city. It was like, if you don't get killed in the war, you want to kind of end up there. Very, very nice, very luxurious, lots of things going on, lots of arts and entertainment. It was a destination town in many ways. The, whole, the entire city, in fact, was given Roman citizenship, which was a big deal back then. 
Uh, and from the book of Acts, we know a couple things. One, Paul and uh, Luke and others go to Philippi through a vision. It's one of the only miraculous stories like this in the book of Acts. But they're doing all this ministry in what we call today Turkey and other areas, Galatia, that type of stuff. And they get this vision of a Macedonian saying, please come bring us, bring us the gospel. And so suddenly they just pick up and go up there and they, uh, they found the church in Philippi. Acts then goes on and describes three different people in the early church of the Philippians. This is Lydia. There's a crazy, whacked out slave girl who's demonically possessed, running around chasing and heckling the, the uh, apostles as they do ministry. And then eventually she is um, cleansed the demon and she becomes part of the church. And then there's the jailer. Once the apostles are thrown in jail, he would be considered what we call middle class. Lydia is actually wealthy uh, because making purple cloth in the ancient world was almost impossible. Um, if you don't have modern dyes and chemicals and you can't go to you know, Hobby Lobby and buy that purple dye or something to make something like it, make a tie-dye t-shirt, uh, you can't do that very easily in the ancient world, right? Purple doesn't exist a lot in nature as a color, right? You can dye things green and brown, and that's kind of easy. You just kind of do lots of chemicals uh, from even just at applying mud and things. Um, black was a very, that's what the Middle Ages are known for as a black age. They wore black. It's very easy to dye things black. You just get ash from a fire and sort of smash it into the cloth. How do you make purple? Well, you make purple by pulling up this crazy crustacean little thing out of the Mediterranean Sea and getting a gland about that big out of it and squirting one ounce of this purple dye out of this gland into a bucket. And it takes a ton of them to get this dye. And then you have this purple cloth. And so when it says, Lydia, the purple cloth salesman, they're going, wink, wink, she wealthy. She's got money. She's an entrepreneur. She's at the upper crust level. And in fact, when she comes to the faith, uh, she says, please come to my villa and stay with me. It's like a, a beachfront apartment, uh, you might say. She's, she's in the upper level. Um, so you might say the, Philipp the Philippian church has Lydia and Crazy Girl down at the bottom and everything in between. Uh, a street urchin who has like no rights, no privileges, probably not even citizenship. A jailer who's just kind of eking out his 401k life, trying to you know, work on towards retirement. And then you have Lydia who's quite wealthy. And everything in between, social status means that much in the ancient world. Belonging means that much. So when Paul, when we get down into these verses, and we get to the verses Paul uh, Sorensen preached on last, last week, which is this idea of Christ emptying himself, not thinking much of himself, and giving up of himself, and coming for us, this, this is a very, very punchy passage. He's not just talking to people who just need to be nicer with each other. He's talking about strata in societies that do not belong together, but they worship the same Lord, they love each other, and they have to get on with life together in a way that they're not used to. Everything in the society said, you two, don't, you two or three strata don't belong together. But in the church, you all bend the knee to Jesus, and you're all his child, and therefore, what you end up having is a tense relationship at times. It's got problems. It's like I always say with marriage counseling. You don't start with marriage counseling by asking, are there problems? You start marriage counseling by saying, so what problems do you actually have? Because everyone has them. Why? Because you've got two sinners living together. And that by nature, you're going to have problems. Well, you stick a bunch of sinners into the same room, you're going to have frictions and tensions and challenges and, and insecurities and all those types of things. But what Paul here says is, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed um, in my absence, now work out your salvation with fear 
and trembling. Couple things about that. It sounds scary, but it's not. It's signaled by, at the very beginning, even in the English translation, it says, therefore, my beloved. You don't call people beloved and then whack them upside the head with some sort of correction. When Paul and other books of the Bible, when they are needing correction, he doesn't stop and say, hey, guys, hey, beloved. Let me, hey, let me talk honestly. He's like, stop it. Like, he's like the, 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 the distressed parent who says, please stop saying these things and doing these things. Here he is encouraging something you might say for the kids who are behaving, but he wants to reinforce the good behavior. And he says, my beloved, and the, Paul only uses this type of expression three times. It's a certain thing you could do in the Greek grammar, where you say basically, um, my beloved, it's this very intimate language. Uh, Greek, you can't do this in English, so it's hard to describe, but in this sense he's saying, um, hey, hey friend, hey, hey, whatever pet name you might have for somebody, hey, listen to me. And it's a, it's a wake up. I'm, I'm not coming at you hard, rather, because we know each other, let me say this, you need to obey. You need to obey. Now what does that obedience look like? Because that's an important word, right? You gotta obey, just as you always have, keep obeying. Well, depending on how you come at this verse, you're gonna sit there and say, that does not sound very kind. Just as you always have obeyed, you're going to keep obeying. And if I have to come back there, I mean, it just starts to sound like the, uh, the, kid, the parent driving kids on a long journey. It's like, it sounds like just we started with you shutting up, you're going to shut up for the rest of the ride. And, and it's, it can feel that way. The fact is, is that's not what he's saying. What, and the clue here on that piece is he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the obedience piece. It's just to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that doesn't sound very comforting. <laughs> Working out salvation with fear and trembling. Um, here's the deal. Fear and, start with the end. Fear and trembling is not actually, in a Jewish mind, a scary thing. So all throughout the Old Testament, you hear this word fear a lot used in a positive sense, right? So the beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord. In at least 21st century America, that's not, those, uh, wisdom and fearing people do not seem to be synonyms or some connection, right? or that there is a fearing the Lord all throughout the Old Testament. Paul in 1 Corinthians will say, when I came to you, you, you received me with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean they were quaking. It actually doesn't mean that they were afraid as we use the word today. Fear and trembling is kind of a, 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 a slogan or an expression that the Jews used to say, you were humble, you were kind, you greeted me with hospitality, and you had a, a posture of accepting me and bringing me in and not this kind of clenched, pushing away, you don't belong here, I'm better than you language. So in that sense, fear and trembling is the same thing as worship. In fact, that is the major place in the Old Testament where it's described, that you worship God in fear or that you come to the Lord with trembling. It doesn't mean quaking. It doesn't mean, ah, I don't like him. It's not, uh, uh, it's not like, you know, the, the movie Scream or anything like this. It's not that type of fear. Rather, it's a posture thing. It's he is God and I'm not. I'm the child, he's the parent. It's a relational fear, not a obligatory or a law-based fear. It's not measure up or be afraid and tremble. It's know who you are and be humble. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's the language of a child. It's the language of acceptance, of love. It's not fearing and trembling as you might read it. And 
When he says work out your salvation, he doesn't mean earn it. Okay? This is the same Paul who elsewhere says you can't earn salvation. He even says that you can't keep your salvation by backdoor earning it through by, okay, I was in my grace, but now I'm going to do the rest myself. Thanks, God. Paul's not meaning any of that stuff. In many ways, it's the way the English reads. When you, if I were to say, work it out, it means fix it, right? That's not what Paul means. Paul's language of work it out would might be the same in English as saying, carry out your salvation. Keep on it. God puts you on the road, just keep walking towards it. It is saved people living like saved people, not sinners that need to be saved by doing work. That's a difference. Paul would not say that all you need to do is do certain things and then you're saved, or he wouldn't even say that you accept Christ by walking the aisle or saying the sinner's prayer. Then after that, it's a 50-50 with you and God. Here he's saying, God's doing all the work, technically, but I can still say, keep at it. That there's a great mystery where he says, uh, work out your salvation, which is a command, and then in verse 13, he even stops and goes, but it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his pleasure. I mean, that contradicts the command in some ways. Do it, but he's going to do it for you. It's kind of what he says there. But in some ways, he can do both. He can say, this is amazing, stick to it. But don't get cocky if you think you're doing something, because he's the one that's energizing you from start to finish. So I have a friend uh, who does Olympics uh, chaplaincy stuff. Um, he goes every, particularly goes every four years to the, to the Summer Olympics. Um, he's an Anglican chaplain. Uh, he's all, he does all this different stuff around the world. Um, but he loves the Olympics. Uh, and it's crazy because he um, uh, is absolutely incapable of anything athletic whatsoever. Um, you know, he's just, he's just not that guy. Uh, but he shows up and he said, you know, he told me one time, he said, I go to them because they are the most performance-based people I've ever met in my life, Olympians. And I said, well, walk me through it. He said, their entire life comes down to like a millisecond. Like, like and they only get to do it once, and, and the whole world's only watching once. Yes, they have all the other things that they do before. He says, oh, he says it's just that. And sometimes they know in that, that they, they could have run faster or swam faster, whatever it is. Uh, they could have uh, done their, uh, their um, routine better. They've done it better in practice. He says, they're always this way, but then the lights are on, and they fail. And he says, they spend the rest of their life uh, kicking themselves. I said, well, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> and he said, yeah. Also, imagine like, like the crescendo of your life is 22. And he says, and every, he goes, how many more years do you have left? And he says, that, he goes, it's a very, very delicate ministry opportunity. So, and, he, and I said, well, how do you handle that? Um, he says, well, you don't go in there and say, look, I know a lot of you guys you know, feel bad about yourself. <laughs> he says, he goes, you go in and you say, look, you guys are the best of the best. And he says, let me ask you a question, though. And he says, um, is God for you the referee at the end with the stopwatch? Or is he the fans cheering you on as you run the race? And of course, they always choose the second option. The first option, no, no, no one other than a sadomasochist would choose the first option. Everyone always chooses the second. God cheers me on, and I do the work. 
And I said, okay. I said, that's not the right answer, but what is the answer? And he said, he goes, you're right. He goes, I then say door number three, which I didn't mention. I said, God is not just a cheerleader for your work. He's actually the oxygen in your lungs and is the oxygen in your blood without which you wouldn't even move. He says you would be dead were it not for him. In fact, that is what Paul says elsewhere, that you were dead in your trespasses, made alive in Christ. And so when Paul says here, work out, it's not the stopwatch, and it's not just simply cheering on as you work it out. Rather, it is, I have breathed life into you. I've made you who you are. I'm the oxygen without which you wouldn't even be able to move. Therefore, keep moving. If you realize that God is like that, you don't get cocky when you actually see some progress and you make uh, some headway in your life and you start to see change and you start to experience that sanctification because you know it's, he's the oxygen, he's the energy. Without him, you're not doing any of this stuff. Yet you still want to do it. You still want to move. You still want to race. You still want to run. Paul even says that he runs a race for his salvation, but it's not him earning it. So when you work out your salvation, it's carry out, carry on with your salvation. Stick to it. And a lot of what's happening here is, I think, in the Christian life, if you, we live in a world where, you know, I don't know how many generations ago, there's always this nostalgia, but it seems like at least two or three generations ago, most people kind of went to church, at least in the Deep South, uh, but certainly throughout even this country as a whole. You know, church going, normal you know, thing. Church culture, at least, was there. And there were a lot of examples of, well, good Christian living is like Ansel Adams, you know, not Ansel Adams, the, uh, who's the guy that painted all the pictures for Life magazine? Like the, nut, was it, Rock? yeah, Norman Rockwell, there you go. Though, that's the good Christian life. It's like this perfect, uh, idealized family, everyone's smiling, or at least no one's yelling and screaming and throwing their potatoes at their brother. You know, none of that, like, real stuff, just the kind of perfect, perfect life. And what you end up having is this idealized picture of what, that's what Christian living is. You have to be this way. And then what happens in this context of our world, world today is very, very, very few people come from that, anything like an idealized, perfect upbringing. Either you were raised not Christian, you were raised in uh, a different faith, you were raised and you were wild and didn't listen to anything about the Christian faith. Uh, you come from broken homes, no homes, whatever it might be. Even if you, you got very fortunate and you have, you know, um, uh, relatively stable upbringing, still you're like, this doesn't feel right. And what Paul says here is he's dealing with people that come from all these different backgrounds and brokenness as well. He even says later that this is a crooked and twisted generation. That's pretty anti-culture right there. But what he's saying is this world's broken. And particularly the Roman world is pretty chaotic and it's nuts. And the, the low ethics and just doing whatever they want, uh, uh, d you know, demon worship with all these pantheon of gods, all this kind of craziness. And he's going, look, there is no ideal that you have to be to be here. Rather, by being here, this is what the church is. Love each other. Love the slave girl who's crazy and probably still has problems and, and, and you have to deal with the hard challenge thing. Love Lydia, who's probably a bit cocky and full of herself and has like all the power and the strength, and she has to be told, settle down, you're not in charge, you're not the boss. All this type of stuff. I'm sure none of these problems have ever happened in your churches or happened here, right? Uh, this thing happens, happens all the time. It's hard to love people that come from radically different backgrounds, radically different contexts, radically different stories. 
And what Paul here says is work that out, and then he applies it from verse 14 down. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Be blameless, innocent, children of God. Be blame, well, without blemish in a crooked generation, among, who, among whom you shine as lights uh, of the world, in the world. That's language that's echoing Christ saying that you're salt and light in this world. You're supposed to make a difference. So what I'm trying to say here is, is and what Paul is definitely saying, is if you have some super spiritual, like quasi-Buddhist ideal as to what it will be like to finally arrive at being a good Christian, you're doing it wrong. What it means to arrive at being a Christian is to know you're broken, know who you are, be humble, and love each other. It means to be honest about your mistakes, honest about your existing problems, and honest about the, the ways that you get kind of frustrated at times with this life. If that's the brutal honesty of real Christianity. It's not this kind of serene, levitating stuff where you suddenly have no problems and everything just sort of happens by nature. And no big deal, no big deal. No, what Paul says is when you have hospitality with each other, you're going to have problems. Eventually, someone gets dragged behind on the three-legged race metaphorically speaking. <laughs> Eventually somebody gets hurt. Eventually somebody has a challenge. Somebody has problems. And if you try to sanitize the church of that stuff, you no longer have the church. Rather, what you have is a country club. And so what Paul says is when you live together, it's going to be like this. So I'll end with this story. Um, one of my staff members named Jean, um, she grew up, uh, her parents divorced when she was quite young. Uh, she, she knew her father a little bit, but not quite well. Uh, her mother was a very strong woman, was an amazing woman. I've, I've met her since. She's, she's, she has a, a thriving counseling ministry. Raised her daughter right, raised her daughter to be proud of being a woman, not, not to, to back down. Uh, and Jean went, uh, as a result of her mother's influence, uh, to an all-women's college, uh, and she was very much about women's rights. This is the 1980s. Uh, a lot of, uh, uh, seems, seems like forever ago, but in some ways it's not. Seemed like you know, the, the challenge was uh, equality in the workplace, being able to do whatever you want, all these types of things uh, that are more or less assumed now, though maybe not idealized perfectly. So she goes on and uh, she takes on a very political tone because she's completely not Christian. And so she, after college, she and her new husband uh, end up uh, working with abortion clinics. In fact, Jean becomes a pretty, I hate to use the word, but successful counselor for abortions for people when they come in. She was the opposite of um, the, the preventative um, uh, ministries that happen in a lot of cities where you try to intercede and uh, say, look, maybe give the baby for adoption, these types of things. She was the opposite. She was saying, nope, here's how you do it. Let's, let's, let's put some uh, streamlining onto the process. Um, and so what she ended up doing was going around. I mean, she, she would counsel in clinics, and then two weeks later it would be shot up by people that were opposed to the new legislation on abortion, that, that type of raw, earthy uh, 1980s world. Um, the problem with her life was, of course, she had no faith, and she was just sort of uh, enshrined, enshrouded by this context of uh, this is what's right, this will fix the world. Uh, and then she realized that she had never actually been in the operation room when one of these procedures was performed. And one day there was a, a, a largely obese woman who was having her fourth abortion. Um, this time it was a set of twins. And she needed to be in there because of the complications and to be able to answer quickly if there were any issues, she needed to be there. Uh, and then they took two um, twins and laid them on a table sort of right here in front of her. And she, she couldn't stop staring at 
the, the craziness of her worldview that told her that these weren't babies, these weren't children, that these weren't humans. And she said, I wasn't a Christian, but I knew it was broken. This isn't real. This, can't, this is not true. So she quit within three weeks, and she ceased to be a counselor for that. She goes home, uh, and she tells her husband, we need a job. And so her husband goes, all right, I'll look around. And he happens to find a job in Jacksonville uh, almost immediately. They hire him. He, they move down to Jacksonville. At that point in her life, she says, the only way she knew Christians were, were the Christians that she saw on the picket lines every time she went into uh, work each day. She said usually they yelled at her. Not a few of them spit literally on her. Um, and all she saw were angry faces and signs and those types of things. That's all she knew. The only context was Christians are mad about me and what I do. And it only reinforced a lot of her life. But now that that life was herself, she herself doubted that, she was like, I don't, I still don't know why they were so angry, but I still don't trust them, but I also don't trust this. What, what, what do I need to be? She felt very lost. <clears throat> and her father, her now not a strange father, but at least um, still distant father, had a massive heart attack, and she felt that it was probably appropriate to go see him because it seemed like he didn't have long to live. So this is, uh, at this point, the early 90s, she packs up uh, her oldest son, drives to North Carolina leaves her husband behind because he has a new job and can't leave. And she says she arrives at the hospital, and when she gets there, she can't even get into the hospital room. Um, not because it's, there's doctors or, or any restrictions, but because her father had, within the last couple of years of his life, began attending a church. And the church had embraced him, and he had had a crazy life and a wild life and a bad life, and they, they loved him for, even though he was a sinner, and he had embraced the gospel. And when he had the heart attack and when his daughter, Jean, my friend now, arrived, they were thick in the room, and she couldn't even get into the room. They were all there. And they spilled out into the lobby, and she said they arrived, and they found out, they, they immediately noticed uh, the, the, the uncanny relationship. They, they certainly looked like his daughter. They said, are you related? They said, Okay. And she said immediately, for three straight weeks, they didn't have any money. They'd just given up their, their, their high-paying job, and they had, this, they had moved to Jacksonville. She said for weeks, they, she didn't have to pay for anything. They took care of her. They babysat the boy when she needed to be in there, talking to her dad, uh, saying the last uh, couple of things, having the last conversations you have with your dad when he's dying, those types of things. She said the pastor is an Anglican church, so the priest slept on a mat, not a mat, but just a pillow and a blanket on the floor in the hospital room. He wouldn't leave his friend's side. And it was one of those things where she said, the only Christians I knew were those who actually just spat and yelled and screamed. And she says, now I come here and there is this radical embrace of my dad who they knew exactly what he was like before and they didn't seem to care. In fact, they all seemed to treat him as one of them. And not only that, but here's this crazy daughter that arrives in that has been not really close to them all these years and suddenly they embrace me, and they don't care. And there's this, this inclusion, this, this, this not love because they have to, but it's just only natural. She's not paying for anything. We're taking care of her while she's here. Her dad's in the hospital. There's no one else. But there's this love that is what Paul is talking about here, this, this, this light in a dark world. That's what being a church is. It's embracing people. It's loving them. It's not even hesitating when people need things. It's that life. It's not a burden. It's not a performance. It's not even God cheering on as we race. Rather, it is God saying, I have saved you. I have loved you. And what that looks like is an obedience which makes you humble. 
You don't get cocky about your faith when it was a gift in the first place. And therefore, what that gift looks like is you love everybody. And it doesn't mean it's easy, but what it means is that it happens. So what does it mean to live as a Christian? It means ordinary life, hard stuff, friction, tension, even sometimes fights, even sometimes annoyances, heaven forbid. What that means is, is that they never stick for very long because we all in the end love each other because we're all the same children for the same Lord and the same master. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's easier always to think about what we are not than to realize what we are, that we are your children. And because we're your children, you have loved us first, and you are working and willing in us, as Paul says here, uh, long before we were even aware of it, and ongoing as we're even sometimes not aware of it now. But Lord, allow us to know love. Allow us to be loved. Allow us to be honest. But above all, allow us to be your children. Lead us down that path in a long obedience in the same direction. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.